Okay, here we go. The Panda Maggie Show. He's about to get crazy and wild. Stay for a while. Don't touch a radio dial. The Panda Maggie Show. Kicking it back. Sports talk. Listen to that and stay tuned for some giggles and last go. Welcome to the Panda Maggie Show. Bonsai. Hello. Welcome to the show. I have a couple of announcements to make before we uh, commence with episode 19 of the Planet Mikey podcast. By the way, thanks everybody for downloading last week. That was great. Download this. Boom. Bang. Downloads. I can hear them. Boom. Downloading all around the, the yard. Um, first of all, we are sponsored by... What are you laughing at, Ben? You. We are sponsored by Dr. Robert Leonard, 1-800-GET-HAIR. Uh, he's the reason I'm hairy. He's the reason you could be hairy, too. Six locations throughout New England. It's Hair Restoration with Dr. Matthew Lepresti and Dr. Robert Leonard himself. You call him, you get a free consultation. You will not be sorry if you're trying to avoid baldness. That's what I tell everybody. And everybody believes me, and they go, and they call me, and they go, it's true. Uh, we also uh, remind people that uh, some of our guests, many of our guests, almost all of them, as a matter of fact, uh, dine at Joe Fish Restaurants in North Andover and North Reading, the greatest seafood restaurants in New England. And new today to the program, uh, we welcome My Grandma's Coffee Cakes. You've heard me talk about them for years on the radio. I've eaten 15,000 of these cakes. I love them. They're the best cakes, best coffee cakes in the world. I mean, I, I go out on a limb on this. They're the best coffee cakes on earth, for God's sake. And I know this to be true. So now that I've taken care of all that business, we're happy to have uh, a man who not only do I totally, immensely respect his professional work and all the things he's done as a writer and an author, but I like the guy as a person ever since I met him. It's Lee Monfield. Right. How you doing, Mikey? No, how you doing? I, I can feel my hair growing just just by you talking about <laughs> about the whole process. You, you know? might want to check your diet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, how, uh, how do I stop it? <laughs> <laughs> it's out of control. Uh, Lee was with the uh, Boston Globe. It's a little local paper we have in New England, and uh, the Sports Illustrated, right? Sports, yes, Sports Illustrated. Uh, but I I think I'm. Happiest that you went went off and just said, "I'm going to start writing books because your books have been fabulous, all of them." Thank you very much. Nine books, and you know who who thought that I would ever put on nine books? What was the first one that you ever wrote, and how For, old were you? I don't know. I I I was a boy genius. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. The first book was about Manute Bull. I, I it, it it took me a long time to write a book. A guy once said to me, he said, "You know." I don't want to write, you know, I'd like to write, um, you know, some kind of Hemingway kind of book. And he says, I, I can't imagine it saying also by so-and-so, Pete Rose, the Charlie, Charlie Hustle, the Pete Rose story, you know. <laughs> right. And so I stayed away and stayed away. Then I did a story on Minute Bowl for Sports Illustrated. And I just found the guy, you know, his whole story fascinating. That was I, the center of two worlds? Center of two worlds. And and I, I, I did a book on Minute Bowl and... Uh, you know, it sold about seven, but but I, I liked it. It, it was it, it was a really interesting story. You know, well, and these these can sell into perpetuity. You know, uh, books like that because he was such an interesting character and in such a, a high profile sport. But what a what a weird story uh, his was. Not just the seven foot seven stuff. That's yeah, nothing. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, it, it was the whole thing of uh, 
He he was like the golden fleece or something that that the, everybody had been searching for. This guy, seven foot seven, and and they took him literally out of the jungle and brought him to the University of Bridgeport, where he couldn't read, couldn't write, but got a two point nine. Didn't speak English. Uh, didn't speak English. Didn't you know? He, he didn't know how to hold a pencil. Um, that they had to teach him how to hold a pencil. I mean, now is that a testimony to uh, his his ability to you know? follow through on, on this mission, or is it Bridgeport's lack of academic standards? I don't know. They, 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 they let him take, um, take verbal classes, you yeah. know, so he didn't have to write. And, and he was a smart guy, yeah. and, and he could speak. But when he learned English, he could speak like four or five languages. Um, so it, it was just an, an interesting thing. He also died at a very early age, as many very, very super tall people do for some reason. I don't know why uh, in particular, but he that was sad to read. I, I actually met him at the Boston Garden, and it was kind of a bizarre thing because I was drinking that night. Can you imagine? No. He was up in the ring, you know, up on the top layer, uh, seventh, what is it, seventh floor there where the press is? And he was sitting on a chair, folding chair. Uh, and I was looking at him standing on my own two feet at perfectly uh, equal eye level because he was sitting and I was standing. And you, that's something mm -hmm. you can't believe when you see it because he had such long legs. Um, and I was uh, eating peanuts and drinking beer. And I, want, I saw him and I said, I walked up to him. I go, Bridgeport. And when I said the P in Bridgeport, a piece of peanut <laughs> flew out of my mouth and stuck to his cheek. <laughs> right, right on his cheek. And so I, I just reached out and gently brushed it off. It felt like an asshole. That's how you were an that's asshole. How, I wasn't. You just spit all over him. I didn't mean to, though. I was saying hi. That's happened when you've met many famous people. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 he was perfectly nice. He didn't care. And I shook hands with him. And I'm like, you know, I talked to him a little bit. He was so nice. And then I was, um, as I'm leaving that night, I'm thinking, why? You, why did you spit a peanut on his face, the poor guy? Uh, he was a really a, a sweetheart of a person, is what I'm for hearing. Now, uh, you'd know better than me. Yeah, no, he, he was, and he was funny, and uh, you know, Bar Charles Barkley and, and Ricky Mahorn were his big buddies, and uh, they, they, he said that he said to them, he said, the problem with the black man in America is you guys have no tribes, you know, and it sounds like a surface kind of thing. But it, it's what he's saying is you, you have you, you came here as slaves, basically, mm -hmm. and you have no country, no affiliation with people. Yeah. He said you have to have tribes. And, you know, he, he was very proud. He was a Dinka, a Dinka tribesman from the Sudan. In Africa, that's, it's, it's nothing but tribes. <clears throat> it, it, it's all tribes. And I, I, I went during that thing. I went to the African basketball championships and, and you sat there and you watched the teams from the different countries and they all look different i mean like like if you watched norwegians or frenchmen or italians and stuff you'd say oh those are the italians and, and you would watch this and you say oh yeah those are the guys from the french cameroon those are the guys from angola those are they all had physical characteristics that from where they where they originated yeah yeah geographical tendencies then uh, on how they look that's kind of i you know i never thought of that uh and in in this country, people are united by the by the race specifically, you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, and uh, not the other elements of their culture. Yeah, I, I said to this guy who'd gone to the University of Maine. He, he was from Senegal, and I said, uh, "Did guys ever talk look at look at black Americans and say 
or you know where he comes from. He must come from wherever Atlanta. Said, yeah. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, you know, from where he came from in Africa. Oh yeah. And 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 he said, yeah, we 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 would talk about that. And I said, well, what about like Michael Jordan? Where do you think he came from? And he said, oh, we all thought he came from Senegal. <laughs> <laughs> latch, on to, latch on to that in a big way. So, t- uh, tale of two, center of center of two, uh, hold on. Whatever. So it's center of two, what is it? Minute. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Where, idiot. Why did, why did I know it four minutes ago? And nice notes, I Dick. I don't have notes. <laughs> I don't need notes with Lee Monville. I've read every single book. You, you've written books, Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Evil Knievel, Dale Earnhardt, Muhammad Ali. How do you try to approach that differently when those are all fairly well-trodden ground? There's been a hundred books of Babe Ruth, thousands of books about Muhammad Ali. How do you look at it and say, I need to find a unique approach. You know, it's interesting. They, um, my editor wanted me to do a book on Babe Ruth, and I kept saying no. A guy named Robert Creamer had done a famous book, The Babe, yep. Yep. And, and that had, I mean, that was held up as like the, the ultimate sports biography. And I said, why would I do that? And my editor, who was like 45 years old, he said, you know, that could be the greatest book in the world. He said, I've never read it. None of my friends have ever read it. Nobody who's 45 years old has ever read it. But if like a new book on Babe Ruth came out, we'd read it. And you think about it, that that's kind of kind of the way it is. I mean, they keep pumping books out about Lincoln and Washington. Right. But the, the, the key is to put is to make it a, a different twist. We've we all, we all know about yeah. Babe Ruth's The Called yeah. Shot. We know about the yeah. 27 Yankees. But your uh, mastery of that story was... Making me, someone who I thought knew everything about Babe Ruth, say, oh, my God, this is great. This I'm finding out stuff I didn't know. Yeah, but, I mean, my book came out, I don't know, I, I guess like 12 years ago. The Big Bam. Yeah, it came out like 12 years ago. And there's a book on, on Babe Ruth out now by Jane Levy. Um, which is She wrote good. the Koufax book. Yeah, which is doing very well. Right. And, and, you know, it's the people who hadn't read my book, I guess, have come along and, and they're reading her book. Well, let me just tell you this, and I, you know, I'm obviously you're here. Uh, I don't owe you any money. Uh, I'm telling you that your Babe Ruth book was by far the best ever. I've read them all, and it was. I, I here's how much I love that book, Lee. I bought it, and then I bought it on audio books, so I could listen to it again in the car because that's where I have more time. Uh, that I'm an uh, Lyft driver, <laughs> but uh, it was fabulous. It was a really, really good job on that. And uh, people have to understand when you read this book, even though it's 12 years old now, but it won an award for the best best baseball book of the year, right? Did, no. Or was that the Ted Williams book? It was the Ted. Oh, Williams Oh, I'm sorry. Book. Okay, yeah. I get I get all your great books confused. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get confused anyway. Yeah. Um, but the big band was that was that the most successful book, or was it the Ted book? No, the most successful book was a book on Dale Earnhardt. Um, wow. I wrote a book on Dale Earnhardt after he died, and 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 I did it kind of fast. I had, I had proposed the book, and they said no, no, no. And then Dale Earnhardt died, and they called me up and said, "Can you write a book about Dale?" And I said, "All right," and and we kind of hustled it out there. And if you remember, after he died, that there, there were these. There were these demonstrations on the third lap of every race in NASCAR. Everybody right, would honor. stand up and they'd hold up the three fingers. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of guys across America that 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 have like the Dale Earnhardt room in their house, sure, where they have the 
I don't know, the slip covers and the, the pillows yeah. and the lamp and the whole thing, you know. It's a and godlike figure, it's a, like, yeah. like Elvis almost. Yeah, I, I, they, they probably keep their guns in their dealer room. <laughs> I don't know. But. <laughs> now, I'm surprised that the NASCAR people actually read. No, but, no I'm kidding. I'm, I'm being but, mean. Uh, but, that, but that was that, – that, that book sold a lot because of all these dealer and hard people. Well, I got to tell you that, I mean, you know, I'm a baseball guy and I, I've read, I have a whole wall of baseball books in my house because it, my, my parents knew when I was nine that that's probably the only thing I'm ever going to really read if they gave me a book, uh, was the baseball stuff. But the Ted book, and, and I've read them all hit by all the ones that were, that came out about Ted because I'm a big, we're a big Ted Williams family at my house going back to my dad's day. Uh, your book kicked the ass of all the other Ted Williams books as well. So you did Babe and you did Ted. And in my opinion, and in many other people's opinions, they were the best books written on those two icons. Mikey, you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> See that? You know, That's you, all I was trying to get you know, out of you. You know, you'd look at this guy and you wouldn't think he's a well-read man. But you look, you, you know, you hear him talk. I look at him and I'm not sure if he can read. <laughs> <laughs> but I... The, 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 did you get the did, did you get the audio book and the uh, for the audio book for the for the TED book? I don't think I did. A, a guy I know, he he got the audio book, and I said I never heard the audio book. I said, do they say all the swear words in in, in the audio book? Because yeah, he, he could said, swear. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and then you know I put all the swear words in, and and uh, he said yeah. He said I I was I was driving and my kids were in the back and they, they they were they were like half asleep you know and they weren't paying attention and he said i i started this up and he said they started really paying attention <laughs> yeah because you did in the in that book get into quite a bit of detail about how he illustrious he was at the art of swearing oh yeah, oh, yeah. nobody swore better than ted oh yeah do we swear on this show? Yeah, you can fucking say whatever you want. Honestly, <laughs> seriously. The, the best, the best swear word he ever said. He, he said, "Well, I'll be a clapped up Virgin Mary." <laughs> I, That's I, not I, even I, swearing. I, I don't think you can beat that. I don't think. Well, you can the syphilitic, <laughs> you know. But I mean, we we. Well, <laughs> Lobel was in here and he did some interviews with Ted and he was talking about the same thing. How Ted swore better than anybody in the history of swearing. And you, and you put him in the book. Now, Ted, the thing about him that, uh, was, uh, and most people didn't know uh, this, uh, that his mother was a, she was a Mexican, like a, uh, Salvation Army worker. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I, no one ever told me, oh, Ted Williams, he's half Mexican. Yeah. I never really, that never came, you know, you hear about the war hero, you hear about 406, you know, you hear about certain things from Ted in all the books about him over and over again, all the great feats that he accomplished, and they were great, yeah. but you didn't really get a feeling that you knew the person at all. Yeah, but he, he was kind of a closet Mexican, you know, I mean, he, he, he never really embraced the Mexican side of his whole story. Um and probably because the way baseball was at the time, you know, there there weren't many Latin guys in in baseball. Mm -hmm. He did step up big time though at his Hall of Fame induction ceremony, yeah, in favor of the Negro League players, yeah, uh, and he was the first to do that, yeah. So he had some uh, bravado that other people didn't have when it came to certain types of issues, uh, but as you as you discuss in the book, he wasn't he wasn't your quintessential family man. No, no, but. You know, most of these guys I've written about weren't the quintessential family men. You know, it, I think if you write about famous, successful men, that the, they're famous and successful 
because they've kind of blown out the family aspect of their lives, you know, that, right. um, you, you know, I mean, all the way through. Uh, so, so far we've covered, well, we've, we've mentioned, and, and believe me, there's no such thing as covering the Big Bam or the Ted Williams uh, book by Lee Montville until you just get them. And and I I don't care if you get them on audiobooks or you, or you go buy the actual hardcover books. I know some people say, well, they're not reading as much anymore. No, but audiobooks are boom, easy, bang. And they've got to, people have got to take my word for it and make sure they've ingested both of those uh, books by Lee Montville. Yes, I love baseball, but you, you can't love baseball and not get those two books. The Dale Earnhardt book, um, the Dale Earnhardt, <laughs> I have not read the Dale Earnhardt book, but get the, get the, get the audio book. It's read by, it's read by, I, I don't know. And, in, in oh, what's the, what's the movie with, with George Clooney, um, and John Turturro, um, Batman and Robin. No, no, the, the, there's all the country music in it. Um, uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Brother, where art thou? Nice pull, yeah, Smitty. Yeah. The third guy in, in that group, there's three guys in it. The third guy is the guy who read who read the book, you know, and he, he did a great job. And you know, um, no, no. Uh, he's the guy. He's in um, he's in that Coen Brothers cowboy movie. Did you see that on no. Netflix with yes. the? Yes, yeah, Smitty sees everything. Not the name of, but you're right. It's the same. Yeah, he's the guy, the the, the little guy. And we should thing. give him a microphone. He's the one who's seen, seen everything. Now, when you when you have the audio book, the Dale Earnhardt book. Is there noise in the background? Like in the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, you're like at the altar of speed by Lee Montville. Really? And, and I actually, I actually did a, a book reading in Springfield for that, and I, and I brought, I brought the audio book just to play that to bring me in because, uh, because Bill Morrissey, the singer, do you know Bill Morrissey? He was a, a folk singer. Um, he had written a book, and he was doing the other reading. And Christ, he he would he he would read like a, a chapter, and then he'd sing some song that would that would just make you want to melt away. <laughs> and then he would read another chapter and sing a song. I got up, I had nothing, you know. So I put on the thing at the altar of speed. <laughs> <laughs> I bring my own sound effects. Hey, if you ever need somebody to read an audio book, I actually narrate a movie. I can I can do that. That's something I do. That's a you skill. Can do that. I can narrate. If you ever need that, you want something to work cheap. I'll, I'll try to yeah, yeah. put aside my Lyft driver job. You know, I'd, I'd read them <laughs> myself, but it, you know, I, I have a voice that, that, that has stayed off a of radio for a long time. <laughs> Thank this is a podcast. We can do whatever we yeah, want. Yeah, podcast. Yeah. Uh, so well, let me see. Uh, at the altar of speed, uh, Big Bam, the Babe Ruth saga, Ted Williams, the Amer what's it called? Ted Williams, the uh, Amer American portrait of an American hero. Thank you. No, I don't close. spend a lot of time with the cover. Him. Yeah. I, I get right to the book. I don't the pictures, read the cover, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. You you look My for the glossy gold, pages and look at the pictures and the little captions underneath. And you're like, two, I read the book. Wait, Center of two worlds. I'm fighting on Mike's side. You know, he's the guy that's called me a genius. You <laughs> that's know? right. That's right. Um, now let's think. I got oh. You know what? You talked about the, the big subject matters that he tackles, and that's true. It's more of a challenge when you're writing a book about someone who's had hundreds of books written about them to make it interesting, different, better, and stand out. Uh, Muhammad Ali. I mean, God, how many books have been written about that guy? Oh, yeah. But you, yeah. what you did with that was you took a period of his life. You didn't talk about you know what happened in Maine with Sonny Liston, right? You talked about the political angle and his—first of all, he was the most— 
maybe the most recognized person in the world at the time, 66 sure. to 71. Sure. His, his Q score or whatever was huge. Yeah, huge, yeah. And he, uh, you, you know, was a, a very, very uh, controversial figure from the sense that he had the Muslim religion stuff going on with the, um, I just lost level. Ah, the political part of the Vietnam War going on and his refusal to be to be drafted. You you tackled a part of Muhammad Ali, a very complex character, and you took those what a five year period yeah. of his life and and delved into that. Well, here's the deal with that book. I, you know, I I think as a writer, you're always trying to do the the book that's off the beaten track, but the publishers always want you to do. The big book because you put the guy's picture on the cover right. and people say, "Oh, that's Muhammad Ali, baby." So <laughs> I had proposed doing a book on Will McDonough, um, who I thought was a fascinating guy and had a fascinating life and all that. And I, I explained it to to the powers that be at Random House, and my editor said, "Well, could you write about a a twenty page?" summary of what what you would do for a proposal. And I did it. I, I called up Sean McDonough. I called up Will's widow. And I put it together and sent it to him. And about three days later, he said, I don't think so. You know, it, uh, I don't think so. It's, it's not big enough and blah, blah, blah. He said, try and think of somebody iconic. So I went home <laughs> and I, I made a whole list of, of athletes. You know? Iconic athletes. And, and I said, what is it? Iconic, iconic. You know, all the way down. And I said, I'm missing somebody. And then I said, Muhammad Ali. And, and, and David Remnick, um, the guy from The New Yorker, had written a book on Muhammad Ali. And it had gone from, from his birth up to his time with, with the, becoming a, a Muslim. And he had, that's where the book ended. And, and it was called The King of the World. And I said, the most interesting stuff started where his book ended right so i took the next five years of his life and and, and did that and you know okay <laughs> good job on that muhammad ali was i've never seen him on dinah shore this is after he stopped boxing right or no it's, it was later in his career when he's one of his comeback dinah shore asked him she said and it was, this was an odd thing muhammad i understand you won't let your wife work you know get a job <laughs> and he says well I figure she go to work for somebody. She make three dollars an hour, and the boss tells her what to do every minute of the day. He says, "I uh, give her everything she wants: a house, all her cars, beautiful dresses, all kinds of money. I can tell her what to do." <laughs> <laughs> and Dinah goes, "I I see your point," <laughs> and then left it right there. Uh, he had a way with uh, with specific thought processes that were different, but. You know, he was so impactful. But the, when he was talking about the Vietnam War, and I, it wasn't uh, an issue that didn't rip the country right in half. A lot of people thought, "Well, that's unpatriotic. You know, that's disgusting. You won't fight the war. Do your duty as other people said. That war sucks. It's immoral, uh, and it's against your religion. And why should we make you go over there and get killed like with fifty-four thousand other people?" Yeah, yeah. So it was a, a period of time where he was split in the middle of that. Really, because he was so unbelievably popular as an athlete, but then that 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 hurt his image a little bit for a while. It kind of like when it started, it, it was maybe seventy thirty against him, and when it ended, it was maybe seventy thirty for him. Right? Yeah, I mean that the country changed. He helped more, flip that more switch. than anything. Yeah, I mean yeah. He, he was one of the voices, and he, you know, 
a billion body bags and stuff like that right. and, a, and a lot of lies from the government. And it, it was an that. unbelievable situation uh, going on, and people don't realize it. Have you thought about going back to that Will McDonough subject? I mean, a sports writer with mob ties who gets yeah. into a fight with a player in the locker room. I mean, it, it is a fascinating story. He's a fascinating guy. Yeah. Get up some money. We'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> I got like 20 bucks. Yeah, yeah. Is first, that yeah. two pages? The yeah, first time I met you know. Willie was on a golf course, and he he's pointing at me from the next hole. Right, and, and this is uh, what was 90s, her name in the nineties. He's pointing at me like like I've done something wrong, shaking his finger at me. So I I walk over. I go, you know, what? And he's walking toward me. He goes, you. He goes, you. You know, he's pointing his finger. And I said, what's up? I get up close to him. He shakes my hand. He goes, you're a funny bastard. <laughs> he, he told a story about when they were kids. Whitey Bulger was like a little older than him, and he said we were hanging around the corner one night, and Whitey Bulger came driving up and he'd, he'd stolen a white Cadillac convertible <laughs> and he pulled over and he said come on let's take a ride and he said so we're riding in the white Cadillac convertible and he said that there was a guy with a one of those good humor bicycles do you remember those things that, yes they were like bicycles with, with the refrigerated back with the refrigerated front you know front, you, yes, you, right. you know and you pushed and well it, it, this guy was trying to push one up one of the hills in Southie and Whitey kind of pulled the Cadillac behind him and put the bumper into his back fender and started pushing him up the hill and, and the kids on the thing and whitey starts going faster and faster up the hill so they got up to like you know 45 miles an hour <laughs> guys out of control they got to the top of the hill and whitey pushed the brakes and the kid went shooting down the hill. <laughs> it's right out of a movie yeah no I mean, that's great that's kind of so he was a piece of shit <laughs> but you know what can we just all three of us in the room here with you lee convince you to do that book yeah, you really should. Yeah, you know, because maybe it won't sell nationally as well as the Dale Earnhardt book, but yeah. in New England and and I, I'm sure Howie Carr could get a few. Uh, yeah. But but the th the thing is that that's a great idea for a great book about a subject that's everybody knows him and yeah. everybody's interested in him. He's part of the you know like the Mount Rushmore of of Globe writers. He, he was Billy Bulger's um, campaign manager when Billy Bulger first ran for office. You know, I mean he. He was Billy Bones. So he, he was like locked in with all those guys. Yeah. And that's, see, there's the interest in all the per peripheral characters in that as well, as, as well as Will's own strength as a character, a central character of the book. You got to do it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like three weeks before he died, he wrote a letter to, to I don't know, the, for somebody. He, he wrote a letter for, for the guy that, that, what was the guy, the FBI guy that went away? Oh, yeah. Uh, John, John, uh, John, uh, John Connolly. John Connolly. Smitty, without you, we don't have yeah, a yeah. show. It, but, but like three weeks before he died, he wrote a letter to the judge for John Connolly, you know, saying John's a fine guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's that's got to be that's got to be one. Now, e oddly, evil Knievel. Did, did you did you meet him? Know him? Did you get any any anywhere close to this guy? Because he was a strange cat. Uh, he was a bad guy. He was a totally bad guy. Um, like the Jerry Lee Lewis of motorcycle jumping. Yeah, well, he. Yeah, I, 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 I covered, I covered the canyon jump at, at Snake S River, Snake River Canyon. I, I convinced the Globe. You know, I, I was a young guy, and I said, "This is kind of a cool thing." And I, I went out to the canyon jump, and he, he was just a real bad guy. You know, the, the whole time, and. But he was fascinating. Yeah. What, what do you mean by bad? Like an asshole? I, I, he, he, he screwed all his friends' wives. He stole money from anybody who dealt with him. 
um, you know. Oh, all right. He, he, Fair you, know, <laughs> you know, he lied, he cheated, he did everything bad. He's an asshole. And, and I... And I say, I say, he, he was a total narcissist. He had a lot of blonde hair and, and you know, it, and screwed everybody, you know, which is sort of a business model that that's kind of works and working today, I yeah, think. It's, it's like Wayne Newton. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, oh, you were talking about Trump, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I but thought you were talking about Wayne Newton. Some guys have done a screenplay that, that kind of that, – that, for, for this movie, I, I sold it to, to Sony Pictures, and I, I don't know if they're ever going to make it or what, but but they did this screenplay. So Evil could, Knievel, your book on him is sold as a screenplay already? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the guy... Who's going to do the stunts, though, Lee? Uh, uh, yeah, they got guys, you know. The, the thing about him... <laughs> they with, got guys. The, the thing about him with the stunts was he never... It, it, it's like geometry, you know? You should be able to figure out how far you, how fast you have to go to hit. And he had no geometry. He had no nothing. He had no planning. He was winging it. He was just winging it. He would get on the thing, take three shots of wild turkey, and he would go and 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 he would wind up short, and and he'd get all screwed up, and he'd say, "Well, I got to go faster now." You know. Next time. So next time he'd go faster, and holy shit, he'd go over everything, and he'd get all screwed up again. Doesn't seem to be the way to do that. Yeah, I mean, th this guy that. This guy is like a big stunt guy in, in Hollywood. He, he went to England and he said, my God, he knows nothing. He's this famous guy. He knows nothing. Well, didn't his son, too, take over the whole family business, so to speak? And his, his son, he wasn't good at it? His son, his, no, his son was okay. Yeah. But, but, I mean, evil kind of created the the whole thing. I, Who was I, in the first ver version of the evil community? Was it George Hamilton? George Hamilton, yeah. Yeah, George oh, Hamilton. Really? Yeah. That's the best they could do with that part. He he pushed it. George Hamilton. George Hamilton met him and fell. It was and he said, "I I got a macho up my image, and so I want to do evil Knievel." Yeah. And, and and evil hated him, and George Hamilton hated. You know, <laughs> he went back and forth the now, whole time. Uh, did he do the the stunts himself for George Hamilton with Linda Bird Johnson on the back? Or uh, no, no, no. George, <laughs> LBJ's daughter. There was nothing he was with. Yeah, no. George was uh, <laughs> George and the but I talked with George Hamilton. He was very good. He had he had some funny stories. Oh, he did about yeah. the making of the movie. Yeah, he said when when he when he first got the script, he he took the script to Evil. Evil was in like this this terrible dive motel in Hollywood, right right off Hollywood Boulevard, and and he was like in bed, and he he had like a big Kotex pad on his arm because he he was bleeding from some injury he had and everything. And he says, I, I've got the script here, Evil. And, and Evil says, uh, well, start reading it, you know, do the, do the parts for me. And George Hamill said, I don't do that. I'm an actor. You know, you just read the." And Evil reached behind his pillow and pulled out a gun. <laughs> And he pointed it at George Hamilton, and he said, "Just start reading. <laughs> Read the fucking script." And George Hamilton said, I, "I, I gave the best reading I've ever given." <laughs> That's just oh, this guy evil couldn't even. Did he drink? Did he do drugs or anything? Or he did everything. Yeah, you know, yeah. he did everything. He you lived know. life to its fullest. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he was. <laughs> Jeez, that's now that's another one of now. So, evil can evil, Manute Bowl. Muhammad Ali, Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. Did, did is there anybody? Oh wait, you're a Connecticut guy. You went to UConn. Oh yeah, I did that thing with Calhoun. Jim Calhoun. Yeah. Speaking of guys who can swear. Yeah. Jim Calhoun 
I played 18 holes with him one day, and I've never heard such compilations except from the Ted Williams book. <laughs> he was good at it as well. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't get better than the Clapton version, no, did he? No, no, he didn't. But, you know, he had – you can tell that he, as a coach that he, he was uh, capable of expressing anger in frustrating situations because on the golf course at himself – uh-huh. When he, you know, and at golf, you know, you play golf. I see every year at the museum. Yeah, yeah. When you're playing golf, you can get mad at yourself because you know how to make the shot, but you just don't are, are unable to do it. Well, Jim Calhoun, when he missed a shot, would go off on his just spread, tons of f bombs, bang, bang, bang in a row, all that himself. And I thought to myself, yeah. you know, you got to be calm out here in the golf course. Uh, did you have any experiences uh, with uh, his anger? I don't not so much his anger, but he, he is a guy. I mean, and Ted Williams was the same way. Who liked to fuel himself by any any bad thing that was ever said about him. You know, if, mm-hmm. if one paper in West Virginia said something bad about UConn basketball, he'd say, "I'll show those son of a bitches." Right. You know, we'll do this. And and that was how Ted was. Ted was the same thing. You know, if there there could be. 30,000 people cheering, but if there's one guy yelling something, you know, you're big stiff, he'd say, I'll show that son right, of a bitch, right. you know? And, yeah, he'd go off. It's a, it's a way a lot, a, a lot of teams and, and a lot of athletes work, I think. Jim Calhoun was, uh, I was at a, uh, a UConn, a Gamble Pavilion, uh, and they were, I was watching, actually, I was there for Channel 3 in Hartford covering the women's basketball team, uh, Gino Oriema's team, and Calhoun was running to practice over there, and I could hear all the way across... He was yelling at a point guard, and I think we're going to need our bleep machine, Smitty, for this one. He's yelling at this point guard, and he's saying something to the effect of, you fucking want to be a fucking point guard? You want to fucking be a point, fucking point guard in our fucking program? You can go fucking somewhere else and play fucking point guard. And, like this. and you could hear it all the way across the – he was bellowing it out, and I thought, geez, I'm glad all my dealings with Calhoun have been very nice and friendly. Uh, when he gets pissed, yeah. he cuts loose a little bit. I think he'd be a hard guy to play for, you know. I yeah. really do. But you know what? He put the uh, UConn basketball. Not I was. Oh, I yeah. covered him when they had Cliff Robinson. They they were excited just to be in the NIT in yeah. late eighties, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's winning, winning, he wins the championship in ninety nine. Goes to the basketball Hall of Fame. He and Gino both. UConn kind of became a mecca yeah. for college basketball. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. I, I went there back in 1908, and you know, it's, to me, to me, it's the most amazing thing that's happened in sports. You know, I mean, everybody here, the Red Sox finally 86 years, the whole deal. He said, but, but to me, UConn ever winning a championship in anything was unbelievable. It was because they had the field, the, the pavilion, the field house they had ori- originally. It was like not even a real arena, uh, and the, the, he just lifted whatever he was getting paid. I think he was well worth it, don't you? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he figured it out. I mean, when I was there, though, they had a guy, Toby Kimball. He was from yeah. Belmont, Massachusetts. Bald-headed guy. Big bald-headed guy. He died like, like a year ago. Um, but they got to the the, the NCAAs, and uh, they, they they got to the Eastern Regional Final. They they played Duke, and if they beat Duke, they would have gone to the Final Four. They and before that, they, they'd, beat, they'd beaten Bill Bradley in Princeton, mm-hmm. and they got to play Duke. And they got beat like 110 to 50. You know, I mean, it was they couldn't get the ball. They couldn't get the ball <laughs> past Toby. half court. You know, yeah, I mean, right. it was just a press, and they, they just it was unbelievable. Now there was also a guy at UConn. I don't know if he, it was maybe after you were there, West Balasuknia. 
Yeah. Do you was, remember him? Yeah, sure. He was there. What an unbelievable shooter he was. Yeah, that was before the three-point field goal. He was draining him from he, back there. Yeah, and he went to the ABA where they had the three-point field goal, and he played there. Yeah. Yep. He was a good player. UConn basketball. So we add Cal, Jim Calhoun to the list. So what are you doing now? Uh, what are you uh, uh, going to write about in your next uh, uh, adventure? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a book on um, the 1969 NBA Finals playoffs between the Celtics and the Lakers. Um, I, I covered that as a 25-year-old a, a guy. I had just come to Boston. I was just married, the whole deal. And I'd never been to Los Angeles, never seen the Pacific Ocean, never seen a palm tree. I'd never seen anything. And uh, the only reason I got to cover it was the guy who covered it was a guy named Herb Ralby. And Herb Ralby was also the PR guy for the Bruins. But he couldn't cover this stuff, these playoffs, because the Bruins had this young guy named Bobby Orr <laughs> who, who? Fin finally brought him to the playoffs. <laughs> and, and so he had to be around to say, no, you can't talk to Bobby Orr, to, every, to all the sports writers from Canada and everything. And, and I wound up going and covering that whole thing. And it was sort of a memorable series in 1969. You uh, have done so many great things. The writing career at the Globe, I mean, obviously you were part of the mix, uh, as people call it, the, uh, the um, uh, what do they call it? Ben, what do they call it? I, I don't know what the hell you're saying. The Mount Rushmore <laughs> of Globe writers. You, you worked with McDonough, yeah. yes. Peter Gammons, Bob Ryan, Ryan. all of you guys there oh. at the same exact time. And you're all held up to the same in, in the same way by people who read you for so many years. I, that's got to feel good for you. Oh, yeah. There, there was a story. It was going to be in Time magazine about the Globe Sports Department, then that how it was the best sports department ever, you know? Mm -hmm. And it got into like, I don't know, like 12 editions, and somebody shot at the Pope, and they wound up taking out that story oh. and putting the Pope story in. And fucking Pope. The Pope. He didn't even die. And, and no. And, 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 and they put the whole Pope story in, and they couldn't put the Globe story in because it had been in those 12 magazines that got out before right. they pulled it out. So, uh, but, the, but that was a, a kind of a cool thing. You know, I only have one Pope joke. And so the one about, remember the guy, the Polish joke, the Polish Pope we had, remember a few years ago? Mm -hmm. There was a Polish joke going around. My best friend's Polish. He told me this one. He says, what do you call a Polak with a $600 hat? Pope. <laughs> <laughs> In your years at the Globe, years at Sports Illustrated, we'll just move on from that one quickly. That's a good joke. That's a dated joke. That's a horrific joke. You said Pope. That's like a Bob Bob Hope joke. You're trying to no. You said Pope, and it triggered me. So all the athletes you've covered, been in the locker room. You know, is there any one or two that stand out as just being the biggest asshole you ever had to deal with? Oh, I don't know. There have been so many. How could I? I don't know. It's hard to it's hard it's hard to tell because uh, because like like the the biggest assholes don't even come out to talk to you. You know. Oh, fair enough. They kind of walk away. But Barry Bonds seemed like he was a tough guy. You know, he Ugh. seems like a. I hate him. Lee Smith is Lee Smith is going in the Hall of Fame this year. Sports Illustrated sent me out to St. Louis, Missouri, to to do. Like that long story in the back of Sports Illustrated used to be a big thing. Back pages. Yeah, and I came out and I said to Lee Smith, well, I'm here for Sports Illustrated. I'm going to do the big story in the back. And he said, uh, I don't want to talk to you. He said, uh, the Sports Illustrated jinx. jinx. 
<laughs> that's the front, <laughs> not the back. Yeah, and I said, that's the cover. And he said, no, no, it's a jinx. It's a jinx all around. <laughs> and and I, I said, and he said, no, I'm not going to do it. So I, I called back to Sports Illustrated, my bosses, and I said, you know, Lee Smith says it's a jinx. And, he, and they said, well, go back and ask him again tomorrow. <laughs> so I, I was there for like three or four days, and they kept Trying sending to get him me to... back. You know, I'd say, Lee said, no, 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 I don't want to do it. Is, this, is that why Montana didn't uh, allow you to interview him for the Sportsman of the Year? I don't know why that was. That that was an odd thing. That was a great thing, though. Um, you know, I had to figure out a different angle to, to write about. And I, I wrote it in like a... The, the the second person, like you're a kid and you you, mm-hmm. you, you Joe Montana and you, you have his picture on the wall and you throw the ball and you say Montana to Rice and the whole thing. Well, years go by, Tom Brady wins Sportsman of the Year. He gets up and he said, this is a big award. He said, I remember Lee Montville wrote a story about Joe Montana and you and he said, that kid was me. He said, I was the 12-year-old kid who had wow. the thing on the... That's so, awesome. So so I'm the reason that Tom t- Brady is Tom Brady. That's Write exactly that right. That yeah, how big's your uh, residual check from <laughs> <Yeah>. that? <laughs> well, that should be your next book. <laughs> how I Made Tom Brady What He Is Today. That's right. By Lee Monfield. Yeah. And, well, t- t- <laughs> tell me about the, uh, the Red Smith uh, Award, because that's kind of huge. Yeah, that was a nice. It was a nice thing, you know, to 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 get that award. And, uh, it's like the pinnacle, isn't it, for for a sports writer? I guess, yeah. You know, um, yeah. It was a surprise. It's a nice thing. I mean, I, I knew Red Smith a little bit. He was he was a great guy, and you know, it's, it's nice to be included in that list of names. I guess that's a, an unbelievable. That is the the list of names when it comes to your uh, your chosen profession. And it was twenty sixteen. You won. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, congratulations. I haven't seen you since the golf tournament. And I didn't know about it at the time. That congratulations on that because again, that is that's the list people look at. Yeah, no, it's a nice thing. Yeah, I'm in a Hall of Fame. Um, there's a sports writers and sportscasters Hall of Fame, you know, which has you know like Damon Runyon and and all these different people in it, and that's. That's a neat thing to be in, too. Well, you've done a hell of a job. Uh, the only Hall of Fame I'm in is the goddamn Halfway Cafe Hall of Fame. That's for that's because I, I broke the record for the most beers bought in that in that <laughs> restaurant. I met my wife there. They named a chair after me. Did they really? Yeah. yeah. So that I got that going for me. You know, so yeah, you're not the only guy in the Hall of Fame. shit, too. <laughs> I, remember, <laughs> I, I remember that... That in Winter Haven, Florida, when the Red Sox would train there, yep. that, that there was a bar in the hotel next to the Holiday where, Inn. That next to the Holiday Inn. They're, they're, they're like the next one, the Ramada Inn or something. Yeah. And over in the corner, at the end of the bar, there was a chair and they had. They'd Wade Boggs' name on it. I said, that isn't a good thing, I don't think, you know, to have your name on the chair. No, and a perfect imprint of his ass cheeks <laughs> yeah. on the chair were permanently there, and no one was allowed to sit in it. Uh, so you, you did, of all the teams that you've covered and all the things, you know, what, what is your favorite sport? Oh, I don't know. It, it, I, I, I kind of like them all. I mean, you know, I, I'll watch Jeopardy, you know, I mean. If there's competition, I just start you, you watching like that, it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of stupid. But I know there's one book that I want. You know what? I got to bring this up because you, Ben talked uh, about the the famous subjects that you've that you've written about, and they're all you know big gigantic icons in their individual sport. But there's the one of the great books that you've written is about a man named Montague, 
Yeah, the mysterious Montague. Tell Ben, because he hasn't read the book yet, although he may. He's, yeah. a, he's a very literate cat, right, Ben? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <He> <laughs> tell him about the fabulous Montague. Well, but the, the, mysterious Montague. But there's a... Um, that the mysterious Montague is is getting a little publicity, kinda now, because there's that movie and uh, Stan and Ollie. Have you seen that? No. It's it's it's, an, it's, it's the Laurel and Hardy Laurel biopic. And Hardy. Yeah, and like right in the beginning, John C. Riley is as as um, as Hardy. Uh, the Stan Laurel asks him, he says, "Well, where have you been this week?" He says, "I was with the mysterious Montague, and we were down in Mexico." And and that's the only mention. He doesn't explain right. who he is or what he is or, or anything. But it's um, historically accurate, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, they were friends. They were friends at the Lakeside Golf Club in, in Los Angeles. Uh, and and, and the, the, the key to this book is that, you know, it's one thing to be considered, even in the subculture of golf land, uh, the the most uh, proficient golfer in the world. You know, the most talented, yeah. gifted golfer and Along that, the the hustling that went along with it, but this cat had a history. Yeah, he was a, as a kid, he was a good athlete, an athlete named Laverne Moore, and he was, lived in Syracuse, New York, and um, and and he it was during Prohibition, and he was with a couple guys, and they they um, they, they they robbed a restaurant, and uh, there was a chase, and, and and like three other guys were caught, and one guy died in the car crash and and then Laverne Laverne Moore disappeared and the cops didn't know where he went or where he went well a couple of years later a guy surfaces in Los Angeles California and he calls himself John Montague and he's the best golfer anyone has ever seen and he insinuates himself into this lakeside golf club where where Oliver Hardy Johnny Weissmuller Bing Crosby uh, W.C. Fields, a whole, all these Hollywood celebrities are there. And he's the club champion in the whole thing. And he's kind of a big, broad guy. And and he, he was able to, he had a club head like the size of the club heads that guys use today. The big boppers, yeah. Yeah, you know, a big, big, Bertha. A big club head. But he didn't have the, you know, the, the, the metals that they have today, the, the technology. So it really weighed a whole lot. And he was able to swing this club like most people couldn't swing it, but he was so big and strong, he could swing it, and he was hitting 300-yard drives. Back, back then. Back then when nobody did. When the golf balls were shitty. Yeah, no, and, and, and Grantland Rice would go, would go out to California for, for like two weeks every winter, and he wound up playing with him. About, and he said, this guy is better than Bobby Jones. This is the best golfer in the world. On earth. But he would never try to play in the, 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 the tour and, and he would never let any, anybody take his picture. And, and mm. it was this whole thing. That's, and so they started calling him the mysterious Montague. And finally, there were so many stories by Grantland Rice that Time Magazine sent a guy out to, take, to, to hide in a tree and take his picture playing golf. And the guy hid in the tree, put, it, put about three pictures in, in, in an, with an article in Time Magazine Back in Syracuse, they said, there's that son of a bitch who was involved in the robbery. He's a robber. And there was a big there, there was a big trial. They brought him back and everything. And he was acquitted because because prohibition had kind of ended and people were, were just they didn't give a shit about it anymore. Yeah. And and he played in a, a great golf match with um, with Babe Ruth, Babe Zaharias and this other woman. And and like 
the biggest golf crowd ever came out in Long Island to see see that match. They they had to stop it after nine holes. There were so many people watching the match. Well, and they should make uh, the movie about him, and 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 then you should have dibs on the screenplay for that. Well, we should. See, now we got two projects. We got the Will McDonough book yep, and, yep. And, and the, the Montague movie. And, uh, yep. And, and maybe a remake without George Hamilton. Without George Hamilton, <laughs> yeah. Well, supposedly they, they, they talk Matthew McConaughey. I don't know. Yeah, well, yes. Somebody, somebody who's got some box office power. Is there, I mean, Will McDonough aside, is there any other quote unquote biographies, for lack of a better word, you're interested in pursuing? After the book on the 1969 NBA playoffs? I don't know. Christ, I'm 75 years old. I don't know. You know, how, how long can I write these books? I don't know. Uh, you keep tell going, me. baby. Keep going. <laughs> don't stop. It, I, Lee, by the time I you're 85, they're going to have shit that keeps you alive till you're 115. This is true. Yeah. So yeah, the, just keep writing. They, they better get it going on the production <laughs> line. <laughs> well, and I, I want in on these movie deals, too. Uh, it's been great having you here. I got to say to the radio listening audience, it's not radio, it's podcast, right? Mm, podcast. I got to say, if Lee Montville wrote it, it's great. Read the fucking thing. You're going to be happy you did. Oh, we can put that on the books. Read, <laughs> read the fucking thing. <laughs> put it on your business cards. That's right. Lee Montville, great to see you, my friend. Great to see you. <laughs> oh, 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 oh.